Hi friends, welcome today to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And it's a special day, a big day. I'm excited about it because we're going to be looking at one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Some would say even in all literature, the Ten Commandments. We're going to begin our study today over the next few days looking at Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. So you're very welcome. My name is Jeremy McCandless and the Bible Project is a project for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, If you've just landed with us for the first time today, then why not click on the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts from, and that way you, you need never miss another single episode. So in a minute, I'm going to drop back in and pick up where we left off last time. But please do hang around at the end. At the outro, I'll give you a little bit of information about other ways you can connect to this ministry and access other free Bible teaching resources. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for the moment. And let's drop straight in to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Bye-bye for now. Okay, as I said in my introduction, this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible that we're looking at today. Some would say one of the most famous passages in all of world literature. It's the Ten Commandments as recorded and revealed to us in Exodus chapter 20. These ten phrases have had a profound influence on not just Western morality, but on morality worldwide. It has greatly influenced our view of the law, some have said to the point where it's almost beyond measure, and it is widely recognized in most cultures across the world as the basis of the beginning of all public morality. Most people, it would seem, are familiar with the Ten Commandments at some level, but it seems to me almost everybody on this planet, Christian or otherwise, has some sort of at least vague familiarity with them. But I would like to suggest that our familiarity with the Ten Commandments, for Christians sometimes we're too familiar and we take them for granted, but for other people it's all a bit fuzzy and not very exact, which is why I'm delighted today to come before the Ten Commandments in our series through Exodus. Because today we're going to begin to look at exactly what they really say. So with that in mind, I'm going to read to you now from Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to be reading from the NIV today rather than the King James or New King James, which I normally use. But I'm going to read today and I'm going to begin reading. Well, initially we'll read the whole thing, verses 1 to 11. And it says this, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punish the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labour and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it, but on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So I'm going to pause right there for a second and initially let me talk for a minute about any sort of perspective division of these commandments. As a matter of fact, there are two ways you can divide the commandments. Most are familiar with one way, but there are actually two potential ways. One way has to do with the older Jewish view that says there were in fact two commandments and thereby there were five commandments on each tablet. The second view is a newer view, a Christian view, which actually was started, initiated by a guy called Oregon and then popularised by Augustine of Hippo, St Augustine some people call him, who says that there are two divisions in fact in the Ten Commandments. That there is another way of dividing the Ten Commandments and that says that there are four commandments and then there are six commandments and that the first group have to do with our relationship with God and the second group have to do with our relationships with each other. In other words, they are divided not numerically, but they are divided into subject matter. So which is the correct way to do it? Well, I'm going to suggest perhaps that we should choose to follow what Jesus said when he was asked what is the greatest commandment because he said firstly to love the Lord your God with all your heart and the second he said is likened to it that you should love your neighbor as yourself so to me it seems that the Lord himself divided the ten commandments into parts indeed and he also based them on subject matter so it is that division developed by Oregon and Augustine that I feel links back to what Jesus said, so I'm going to follow that division of the commandments in our time together. Now you'll notice that we're only going to look at the first four today, so what I'm going to do in this episode is discuss these first four, and then tomorrow time allowing, in that episode we'll discuss the final six. And as I said, these four, they deal primarily with our relationship towards God. If you wanted to summarize them just as Jesus did, these deal with how we are to love the Lord our God, and later on we will see how we are to love our fellow men and women as ourselves. And in effect, that is the entire point of these Ten Commandments. So with that in mind, let's roll back again to Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 and see what the Lord spoke saying. So the first two verses, let me remind you, said, And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So let's pause there for a minute right away. Who do we see speaking here? Well, it's pretty evident, isn't it? It's the Lord. So what it is saying here that God spoke and Moses took note. Moses listened and took account of what God said. And then verse 3, coming next, is the first commandment. Verse 2 is not a commandment itself, and that seems to be the settled opinion of most Christian commentators. It is in fact a preamble to these Ten Commandments. But notice how that preamble takes place, how this whole thing is introduced. It's introduced by the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So first of all, he identifies himself by saying, I am the Lord. And you should notice if you've got a Bible handy that again, the word Lord, the term used is in capital letters, indicating that in the Hebrew text, this is the God Yahweh. 
the term Lord, that important point to get a handle on here. It's the personal name of God that's being used. He's not only saying, I am the God, the God of all creation, the one God most high. He's also saying, I am your God personally. And the second thing he does is, well, he sort of says, let me remind you, let me tell you who I am and what I've done. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and I brought you out of slavery. The Ten Commandments were not given to people so that they could be redeemed because that has clearly happened already. They were given to people, to a nation via Moses, to a people who were already redeemed. They had already been delivered from slavery and God clarifies that here. They've already been set free. So the Ten Commandments we can already see are not given to save the people. In the case we're seeing here in the Old Testament, they're being given to a people who've already been saved, who've already been delivered. And I think that's interesting. Now, the place of the law, the place of these commandments, according to Christian thinking, and unpacked in great detail by Paul, was that the law was given in order for people to recognize and to convince people that they were, in fact, sinners. But keeping in mind that no one could be saved by keeping these Ten Commandments. We get saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not possible for anyone to keep all the Ten Commandments always. Now, let me just pursue this, because there's much more going on here, even in this opening, than just the preamble to the disclosing of the law. One Jewish author I read in approaching this opening verse says this is the verse that establishes the idea of ethical monotheism. Now polytheism, that's the idea that there are many gods and the ancient world was full of societies that worshipped many gods. Remember Egypt, they had a multiplicity of gods. And if you also remember when we talked about the ten plagues, those ten plagues were judgments directed against their specific gods. But here monotheism is the idea that there is only one God most high. Hinduism, as you may know, has over three million gods, but it is Judaism here in the ancient world who first established and had revealed to them the divine truth that there is only one God most high, one God who is creator of the whole universe. And it is these verses that establishes that. But it also establishes that this God Most High is an ethical God. Because it will go on to show that this one true God is the one who is the source of revealed morality. Morality in the form of of an objective code, if you like. Something that identifies right from wrong And the fact that right from wrong and the definition of it does not come out from human opinion. It emanates from God himself. Therefore, it stands above. It transcends any human opinion. And the other I disclosed here right in this opening verse is that it is this same single creator God who wants us to treat other human beings morally. We'll find out more about that tomorrow. And also by referring to the deliverance of Egypt, it identifies the importance that this creator God puts on freedom. Notice verse 2 says, look what I did for you. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. So this statement teaches the importance of freedom 
God did not say, I am the Lord, the God who created the world, and because of that you better listen to me. He said, I'm the one who took you out of slavery into freedom because it is only by living in freedom I am able to give you the free choice as humans to respond to me. The giver of the Ten Commandments in effect says, I took you out of slavery into freedom and these Ten Commandments that I'm giving to you are a way that you can really choose to follow me and choose to build a free society if you'll just follow my directions. Have you ever thought about the fact that law, rules, boundaries actually create freedom? It's kind of counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it's absolutely so. As an example, if any of you play a musical instrument, then you will know that there are rules to follow, and it's only by following those rules that you'll be able to play and potentially create something. If you just randomly crash every note in the keyboard, then you're not going to create anything. And in life in general, our response to that may feel that we are restricted to certain rules. It is the rules and the law here that frees people up. Therefore, the laws, the boundaries of God actually liberate us to live in freedom and be who we are created to be. The Ten Commandments here signal perhaps for the first time in human history that you cannot be a free people by simply doing whatever you want. Freedom comes from moral self-control. There's no other way you can achieve it. If you don't have self-control and moral freedom, then this whole free will thing isn't going to work. Or as Jesus says, he who does not obey the will of God and commits sin becomes a slave of sin. You may think it's freedom to do whatever you want, but it is in fact slavery. And pretty soon other people's so-called sense of freedom will begin to encroach on your ability to do the very things that you want to do. Freedom, in fact, is doing what God says, living according to his moral law. If you don't, you become a slave. Well, initially, perhaps to a guilty conscience. But more than that, you become a slave to those destructive things and activities in your life. So it's very clear here that the Lord says, I'm giving you this law so that you can be free. And for in order the people to receive it, they had to be free themselves from slavery. I think that's interesting, isn't it? So what are these laws? Well, we're going to look at them. And as I say, the first four just today, and these first four will talk about a relationship with the Lord. And he says the first in verse three, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that establish? Well, I said I believe that it establishes, obviously, this idea of monotheism. And if it does that, then by nature, it eliminates polytheism, the worship of multiple gods. This verse established that the Lord God is the one God most high and that there should, by commandment, be no other God above or before me. The Egyptians, as I said, had gods all over the place. So this idea eliminates totally the idea of multiple gods but let me suggest at one and the same time it also eliminates idolatry we'll unpack that more in a minute but this is something that surprised me when i studied these commandments closely and i noticed that the very next verse will say you shall not make yourself any carved images now i'll get to that in more detail in a second but right now i want to point out that this verse 3 the first commandment eliminates idols as other gods so it eliminates both the idea of more than one gods, multiple gods, polytheism, and the concept of idolatry. And it does it all in one short sentence. And what it says is a preamble. I am the one who delivered you 
I am your God and your only God and you ought to know that. Now Jesus later will tell us and sum up the first four of these commandments as saying that we are to love God. But I think it would include in that love that there must be an element of praise. We are to have a relationship with him if we are to love him and part of that will be prayers and prayer and worship. As a matter of fact, I think that might be another good way to summarise the Ten Commandments. The first four are talking about love and reverence towards God, which will be expressed through these things like praise, prayer and worship. And the last six talk about respect of God and of one another. So if he is indeed, as he reveals here, the only God, the one God most high, there must surely be a sense of awe about being in his presence. John Calvin, the famous German reformer, said the purpose of this commandment is that the Lord will alone be preeminent among his people and allow him to exercise complete authority over them. And to this effect, he implores us to put away from us all sin and superstition because these things, this idea of God as being one of many gods, or a God that can be worshipped in an idol, they actually diminish or completely obscure the glory of who the one true God really is. In forbidding us to have strange gods, as it puts it in the King James, he means that we ought to transfer towards him everything that belongs to him, all aspects of adoration, trust, invocation, thanksgiving, and not to waste it on false god or silly man-made idols. When anything else is worshipped beside God or in place of God, bad things happen. Even good things can be twisted into bad things when God is left out. I'll just repeat that because you maybe not thought about it in this way. By worshipping anything else, putting anything else above God, even good things can be turned into bad things when you take God out of the equation. Let me give you a couple of examples. Classical music as an example. Something that is meant to and can indeed raise people's spirits. Even the highest form of art can be used for evil purposes. Think just about the Nazis and their use of the music of Wagner. This was unpacked by that great Hollywood director Stanley Kubrick who vividly made this point in his 1971 film A Clockwork Orange. In it, men rape and murder while they play classical music in the background. The music of Mozart is represented in that society as being the high point of all culture. Even education can be used for good or for ill. If we take God out of our thinking in terms of the purpose of education and we divorce it, if you like, from the higher end of God's goodness, it can lead and often has led in the past to great evils Again, getting back to what happened in Europe in the 20th century, many of the best educated people in Europe lived in Germany between the wars, and it was those same people who supported Hitler and the Nazis. No better explanation of this, I think, is found than in the writing of Auschwitz survivor Viktor Frankl, who, commenting on this, wrote this. I am completely convinced, he said, that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Medinica were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or Nazi academy in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. And almost all the Western world supporters of genocidal regimes in the past, like those in Stalin of the Soviet Union, Mao and China, the only people who supported them 
at any level, on an intellectual level, were the highly educated. You see, my friends, to put it simply, there's nothing about a PhD that guarantees a person will be wiser or kinder, or even on the very basic level more ethical than someone with the most basic academic ability or even or no education at all. And a third example is even love can be twisted out of shape if we do not allow God to be the defining author and insight of love. You've heard me right. Even love as a principle, when placed above loving and obeying God, means that love is no longer seen as emanating from God, and thereby even an expression of love can, in fact, lead to evil. Simple examples of that were when people love their country above their love of God. Then they become capable of committing the most terrible of evils. But here God says, I am the God who redeemed you. I saved you from slavery. Now you shall recognize me and not have any other gods before me. So in verse 3, the second commandment is starting to get specific, very specific. He says you shan't have no other god before me. But then he adds that you shouldn't make any carved image of a bird that flies, a beast in the field or a fish in the sea. So what's all that about? What's he talking about here? Why did he need to add that caveat? Now, all my life, I just understood this to mean that you shouldn't be an idol worshipper. I just thought it was an unpacking of that. An idol is an image of God, right? But in preparing this, I began to think about what an idol really is. It is an image of the God worshipped. So I think for us in this time, as Christians approaching this text, well, I have to say, I really only hit me for the first time as I studied this passage in preparation for today and I realised that the actual idolatry itself was already covered and eliminated in the first commandment, that thing of fashioning an idol and worshipping it. So this second commandment, if it's just about that, it would be a repetition and it wouldn't be a second commandment, it would just be more of the first commandment. So what is it really saying? And I had to really think about this And then it came to me, the second commandment is saying, don't make an image out of me. Not necessarily a physical image. They see the command is to love him, meaning you should have a relationship with him and not to create an idea, an image of him that is incorrect. Using the metaphor of an idol, like something out of wood of stone, creating something that represents God and making him an idol in that way. So it's not necessarily talking about idol in the same way as it did in the previous commandment the second commandment i believe is saying don't reduce me to the level of those other false gods by creating a false impression of me so he's expanding upon the first commandment yes but he's saying personalizing it which makes it a separate thing it's not about just being part of a religious group or identifying with a religious system that isn't christian or at that time the judaic christian it's saying that you should not buy dine and serve an idea of your god that isn't the real thing and you shouldn't do that because i the lord your god am a jealous god and i jealously guard my reputation and how it is represented in the world This is saying you have to have a relationship with me. You can't just make an idol out of me because if you do that, then you're not really loving me. You're in fact hating me. In fact, it also warns that if you do that, then there's going to be ramifications of that to the third and fourth generation. And you might think, wow, that seems unfair. How can that be so? Well, I think that 
add-on is just recognising the practical reality is that the head of the house goes in one direction, then it is likely future generations will follow down the same path with the same consequences. But then he reminds us and says, I will show mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments. If you respond to him, he will show mercy, friends. But if you don't, he will hold the consequences against you and those consequences will carry on down your family line. So what I believe this next commandment is teaching is it's telling us that the relationship with him needs to be personal and spiritual and in no way material. Most religious systems other than biblical Christianity want to make their belief system something material. You've got to have an image, you've got to have a statue, you've got to burn incense or spin a wheel. It becomes some sort of external act. But what's being taught here is that you're to the worship of God is to be spiritual and internal, not material and external. Because that's the way you truly love someone. Not just the way you love the Lord. We all know in our heart that in reality, we love people by what we do and the time we spend with them. False worship False gods rob God of his glory. They rob us of our relationship with him. And importantly, they paint a false impression in other people's mind of who God really is. And that is why I believe he says he hates it so much. No likeness, no creative thing, no matter how skillfully fashioned or argued, can possibly fully reflect the nature of God. In fact, such images hinder the face of God. They hide his majesty. They hide the greatness of God. It's bad enough to have an unflattering picture of yourself doing the rounds. Imagine your name being used or put towards something that is totally contrary to everything you believe and are. It's a bit like your photograph accidentally appearing in a newspaper as an image of someone who's done some terrible thing. And that's why God detests it, because it misleads people. It gives them, other people, a false view of who he is. And nothing is more destructive than that in God's mind. And this commandment is particularly relevant today because our problem in the Christian church is not mainly the carved images, the physical idols, although it is in some sections, but for us, it's the mental idols we create. We form pictures of God, but they're not thinking of him and finding out about his true character. I shudder when I hear the way some people speak of God. Some people use their idea, their image of God, to justify the most terrible acts of violence, even terrorism. And that is why any false image of God in any form is forbidden by him here. Because it is dangerous and in fact can inspire great evil in his name. No wonder he's upset about it. Humanity's conception of God is irrelevant. God has revealed himself through his word and through the person of Jesus. And we should take our understanding of him wholly from these things. So what's the second commandment is saying? Yes, it appears talking about idols, but it's effectively saying don't misrepresent God. Let's continue. The third commandment is relatively simple. You shall not take the name of your God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This one's relatively short and sweet and simple. The word vain actually means empty. So don't use God's name in an empty, meaningless way. I can think of two things really quickly, ways that we might do that. Now, some people I know apply it to an oath, but I don't think the Bible in and of itself forbids the taking of an oath. 
even if the name of the Lord is used. So it's really saying don't use the name of God in an empty and irreverent way. And remember, I said the overarching theme of these first four commandments is to love your God and show reverence to God. And this is the one where this really gets to the core of that. Now, there are two ways in which I think people today, that the main two ways in which people do this, and which is through cursing and through using it lightly. It's very noticeable that when people curse, by of course, by nature, they're misusing the name of Jesus. They take that which is good and apply it to something which is bad. But the second way they say they violate this is something that people don't think about so often, I suspect. And it is they use phrases and terms and say things like, as God is my witness, and they will then appropriate God's name to try and give authority to something. But sometimes they will actually do it to try and give authority to do something that they really don't plan to do. They swear by him the way, the same way people sometimes swear on their own lives or their children's lives. But by doing that and using the name of God to do that, they're calling on the God Most High and who he represents and his figure to try and back up and give something authority in the most irreverent way. Because it's they're probably frequently using it to try and persuade someone that they're going to do something that they're never actually going to do in the first place. Which is why it says later in Leviticus, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, by calling in the name of God, well, the name of God represents the person. So, of course, all of this is getting back to, again, we've got to have reverence for God, which, of course, permeates all four of these opening commands, which by nature teach the ultimate purpose of all of us is to teach us how to love and respect God. There's one more for today, and it's remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shalt you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. Now, the word Sabbath simply means rest. That means you've got to keep it holy. It tells you that you should set apart. And on that day, it should be different. You should not work. You should focus on the Lord. Do you also notice the second half of this commandment? Not many people talk about it. It gets skipped over a lot. But it also adds, in six days shalt you labor. I don't think we often point that part out. And I do think it points a picture to the truth is that we are meant to be gainfully employed, gainfully involved in activity which either supports our family or supports the wider community. And that can be done in a myriad of different ways. But my point is God designed us to be industrious and to work for up to six days, but on the seventh day to set it apart, make it different and rest. And the point to that says, well, it actually says he doesn't want you to do it and he doesn't want your household to do it. And he says the basis of this is following the model of God himself, pointing out that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all that was in them. And he did all of that in just six days. And then he rested in the seventh day. So the Sabbath was set apart, hallowed, the King James says. And God is saying here, look, if I did all that and rested, I want you to do the same thing because by doing that you are following me, and by doing that you will be blessed. So in a sense, as God's saying, if you work six days, and then work the seventh day, why are you still working? You work the six days to provide food for yourself, right? Food, shelter, clothing, support other people. But he's saying you should stop working, you should take a day out, because he knows what's best for us, but it's also a sign of trust. By doing so, 
You're saying, I'm going to trust in God to provide for me. I don't have to work every waking minute of every waking day, seven days a week, to get things done. I'm going to rely, I'm going to trust in God to meet my needs, even if I take time off to spend it wholly focusing on him. And I think the part, when we get it further into the Pentateuch, it suggests that part of this setting apart the Sabbath day is meant to confirm God's position within family relationships, within friendships, with, and within our relationships with other people, especially the family, but also within the wider community, building more the community of faith in the family of God. All right, how we're we doing? Have we got it so far? Remember, Jesus summarized all these first commandments by saying the greatest commandment is to love God, meaning put God first in everything you do. And of course, part of that loving him means not misrepresenting him, not misusing his name and revering him, honoring him, worshipping him and trusting him for all seven days of the week. So much so that you can take and set one aside of those days just for doing that. So the question all of this should raise in our minds is, do we love the Lord? Well, let me give you a test. Well, in a sense, I just did, didn't I? I give you four tests four guidelines to follow. Are you following? But let's just boil it down a little bit more and distill it. Let's just bring it down to one thing because that's what Jesus himself did. Are you ready? Here's the litmus chest. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you want to know how much you love the Lord, ask yourself, are you obeying him? Because in the New Testament, Jesus said the commandment was to love him And if you love him, you will obey him. And if you're not obeying him, then you're not really loving him. So do that and you and your family and even your wider community will be blessed through that. Okay, people, that's it for today. We'll come back and we look at the second group of commandments tomorrow. I do hope that's been insightful for you and you've gained something out of it. Can I just remind you, my name is Jeremy McCandless and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. This podcast is hosted on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and it's there you'll find not only links to all the other ways in which I make my teaching available on the social networks and other places like DIN, etc. But it's also the place where you'll find a transcript of each and every episode as well as some notes about the overall creation of this podcast. And it's also there that you'll find the place that you can, if you want to, you can decide to become a partner with and support this ministry by becoming a patron on my Patreon page. It is those people who enable this teaching to be made freely available on all these platforms worldwide. I'm aware that this month we have reached 178 countries and people listening to this podcast. So this wouldn't be possible without the help of my patrons. But thank you to them. But thank you just to everyone for joining me and allowing yourself to be transformed by the study of the Word of God every day and part of your life. 
And if you're not in a position to financially help, that's absolutely fine. But maybe consider if you're finding it valuable, helpful, instructful, encouraging, then why not review it or share a link to it on the social media places that you exist, thereby giving other people the opportunity to allow the Word of God to impact their lives as well. But with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me, but whatever day works and suits you at whatever pace you're doing it, it's absolutely fine. But that's it, and I'll I'll say bye-bye for now from the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.